Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, July 14th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Several tax filing firms are accused of sharing private data with big tech. Fox News faces a new defamation lawsuit related to the Capitol riots. 3.3 billion people reportedly live in countries spending more on debt than health and education. A Russian general says he was fired for airing battlefield concerns. The FDA approves the U.S.'s first over-the-counter birth control pill. Deforestation in Colombia is found to have dropped by 29% last year. The FTC is investigating open AI for possible consumer harm. The UN says 87 people were found buried in a mass grave in Sudan. Hugh Edwards is named as the accused presenter in the recent BBC scandal. And archaeologists say humans arrived in the Americas earlier than previously thought. Tax filing firms shared private data with Google and Meta. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Vox, CNN, Forbes, Gizmodo, Ars Technica, and USA Today. According to a report published by a group of lawmakers Wednesday, some of the U.S.'s largest tax prep companies, including Tax Act, H&R Block, and Tax Slayer, shared millions of American taxpayers' personal information with big tech, primarily Google and Meta, for years. The seven-month congressional investigation led by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, alleges several tax prep companies shared sensitive private data with Google and Meta using tracking tools without informing customers or receiving their consent, potentially violating federal law. Tax Act, H&R Block, and Tax Slayer have admitted to having shared taxpayers' financial information, including their names, full addresses, emails, and details of deductions or exemptions they were eligible for, among other things. Meta also reportedly confirmed to investigators that it used the taxpayers' private data to serve targeted third-party ads to its Facebook and Instagram users and train its artificial intelligence algorithms. The congressional probe follows the Markup's 2022 report, which revealed that tax filing platforms had been sharing their customers' sensitive financial information with Google and Meta, including filing status, adjusted gross income, and refund amount. The lawmakers have called on the IRS, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Justice to investigate the data sharing. Breach of taxpayer privacy laws can lead to fines of up to $1,000 per violation and a prison term of up to one year. Well, thanks for those annoying facts, Melissa. Let's separate some narrative spins. Narrative A comes from the Wall Street Journal. The Biden administration must investigate these massive breaches and prosecute anyone who recklessly violates the country's privacy laws. Furthermore, just like it's taking to task the tax filing platforms, Congress must set aside partisan differences to curb the power of big tech more generally, primarily by limiting how they collect and use sensitive personal and financial data to power their massive advertising businesses. Narrative B comes from The Hill. While big tech certainly merits harsh punishment if the allegations are true, the probe could pave the way to making the IRS play both the role of the tax preparer and tax collector and expand its purview in search of billion-dollar funding. 
Before pointing fingers at the tech industry, the government must stop the IRS from leaking confidential data that the federal government forces taxpayers to provide under the assurance that the agency will protect their privacy. And narrative C comes from the conversation. Tax filing companies aren't the only ones tracking us. Several artificial intelligence firms, including OpenAI, violate U.S. privacy laws by collecting users' online data without permission. Nothing is foolproof, which is why before cracking down on harmful commercial surveillance or giving a mortal blow to the tax prep companies, the feds must get their act together. If they can't protect users' privacy from tax firms, how can they be expected to regulate the uncharted and booming AI industry? And we frequently have a statistics-based nerd narrative. This comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 67% chance that Meta will claim that there was AI-driven, coordinated, inauthentic behavior to influence the 2024 U.S. presidential election. So did these tax prep companies think this was okay and it turns out it wasn't? Or did they think they were do did they know they were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I wonder if the devil was in the details and that that maybe got glossed over in some of these agreements. Well, if I know tech companies, they probably put it in the form of a huge thing you have to read and then they just said the tax companies clicked agree and then it was right. it was done. Yeah, click this box. Yeah, all right, fine. To move on. Well, also, the irony is that the tax code is intentionally Byzantine, the cynic in me says, so that they can basically arrest anyone they want whenever they feel like it. I mean, the the famous example is Al Capone wasn't brought down for racketeering or murder or being a gangster. It was tax fraud. You know, tax, they got him on taxes. So they could probably take you down right now, Melissa, for taxes if they wanted to. They could make you have to go to an office somewhere and talk to somebody that you don't want to talk to if they felt right. like it. And that's why you should always be nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. In yeah. life. Yeah. 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 Don't get the ra- the wrong people mad at you. The sure. IRS is the wrong person to get mad at you. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. We love those. Sure. We love the IRS. They're so great at, in every way. Fox News faces a new January 6th lawsuit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Reuters, BBC News, NPR Online News, NBC News, and CBS. Ray Epps, who attended the January 6th Capitol riots, has filed a defamation lawsuit against both Fox News and Tucker Carlson, accusing them of promoting a false and fantastical story that alleges him to be an undercover federal agent. Epps, a Trump voter in both 2016 and 2020, has been previously accused of being an undercover FBI agent who incited the Capitol Hill riots as part of a government plot to undermine the former president. The former U.S. Marine was filmed encouraging rioters to enter the Capitol in January 2021. However, Epps denies going inside the complex himself and has claimed in previous interviews he became carried away and mistaken by Trump's accusations of voter fraud in 2020. The lawsuit argues that Fox News searched for a scapegoat to blame for the events of January 6, 2021, outside of Trump and the Republican Party, with the News Corporation turning on one of their own. Epps attorney Michael Tedder accuses Carlson alongside Fox of making Epps a central figure of a lie, claiming that Carlson's years-long campaign destroyed the lives of Epps and his wife, with him receiving death threats and ultimately having to move from Arizona. 
In a statement given to CBS's 60 Minutes, the FBI denied that Ray Epps was ever a source or an employee of the agency. Epps is seeking compensatory and punitive damages from Fox and is himself expecting to face criminal charges from January 2021. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And as you may have guessed, we've got two politically divergent spins here. We'll start with a left narrative from NPR. It's clear from Fox's previous settlements and the firing of Tucker Carlson that the company wishes to tidy up its messes and move on. The Murdoch machine wishes to do so without offering apologies or retractions concerning any of its controversial claims. Despite the seemingly continuous wave of lawsuits against Fox, Murdoch's news outlet continues to hold out against the option of admitting they were wrong and apologizing. And the right narrative spin comes from The Telegraph. Fox News wasn't the only one promoting the theory that Epps was a government agent, with other mainstream proponents, including Republican Senator Ted Cruz and Republican Congressman Thomas Massey. While it may have turned out to be inaccurate, Fox News was at the time airing newsworthy claims, not making a deliberate attempt to damage the reputation of Epps or acting through actual malice. A successful lawsuit could have damaging repercussions to press freedom. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus, this time saying there's a 28% chance that the Insurrection Act will be invoked before 2025. I don't disagree with that right narrative that, uh, you know, maybe something could be newsworthy at the time and end up being wrong. Uh, But then if I was a person, which I am, I would then extrapolate that to the future. Don't just believe everything you hear on a news site. Um, Right. Change is a part of everyday life. However, mm -hmm. if you're starting with something that may be not so credible and you get a hunch that, well, it's possible that this is a conspiracy theory, maybe we should flush that out before we air it to the entire world. That's probably a better starting place for good journalism. Or at the very least, if you find out that you were wrong, it should be a equally huge deal on your station that you were wrong. Hey, big news. We were wrong yesterday. That's fine. But that's never what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We should hold ourselves to the same standards. Yeah. Yeah. That that would actually be interesting. I might, if I was, could wave a wand, like the retraction has to be equal in coverage to the mistake. If it was front page bold type, then the next day when you find out like, sorry, everybody, we were wrong. Like that's your next headline. (laughs) Dewey beats Truman. We were wrong. Sorry. Blurp. It has to be equal. And if you got a little thing in the classifieds wrong that was, you know, in tiny fine print, then you can have your retraction in fine print. That's right. Fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, I like that. A little a little tit for tat. Yeah. Punishment fits the crime. According to the UN, 3.3 billion people live in countries spending more on debt than health and education. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera. ABC News and the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. According to a UN report released Wednesday, roughly 3.3 billion people, more than a third of the global population, spend more money paying interest on debt than they do on education or health. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated that in 2022, global public debt reached a record of $92 trillion, with developing countries shouldering a disproportionate amount of the figure. The report also revealed the number of countries facing high debt levels jumped from 22 to 59 between 2011 and 2022. Guterres claimed the crisis influenced by the COVID pandemic and the rising cost of living is hindering nations from reaching UN goals to ending extreme poverty. 
ensuring children have quality education, and transitioning to renewable energy by 2030. The report states that Africa spends more on interest payments than on either education or health. Furthermore, developing nations in Asia and Oceania spend more on debt than health, while Latin America and the Caribbean's developing countries spend more on interest than investment. Citing the International Monetary Fund, Guterres said that 36 countries are in or at high risk of debt distress, with another 16 paying unsustainable interest rates to private creditors, and almost 40% of the developing world in serious debt trouble. According to UN Trade Chief Rebecca Grinspan, public debt has outpaced global GDP, with government debt jumping by almost four times in Asia and the Pacific three times in Africa, two and a half times in Europe and Central Asia, and 1.6 times in Latin America and the Caribbean. Thanks, Melissa. The establishment critical narrative comes from Jacobin. The Western-backed Ukraine war and the pandemic haven't caused a debt crisis, but rather have exposed the inadequacy of the global banking system. Since the U.S. dollar remains the only global reserve currency, third-world countries are forced to deal with the consequences of rising costs of goods and skyrocketing Federal Reserve interest rates. This system, while overflowing the pockets of the major Western financial institutions, pushes developing nations into a black hole of debt and subsequent social unrest. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from AP News. Despite common accusations against the West, China's meddling in the financial affairs of developing regions, most notably in Africa, cannot be swept under the rug. The countries that have recently defaulted on their debt, namely Zambia and Sri Lanka, held as much as 50% of their debt from China. In response, however, Beijing has refused to forgive its loans or even join international debt relief efforts. When China balks at such relief programs, it pushes these struggling nations to the brink of collapse, destroying any opportunities to reignite their economies. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that at least 10 countries will have AAA-rated sovereign debt from S&P in 2028. Well, the good news is for all you uh, countries who don't have the reserve currency as your main uh, main currency. It's not so great over here in the United States either. I mean, it doesn't doesn't fix everything having your own currency be the world's currency. Yeah, are you saying there's a there's a heavy burden? I don't know. I just you would if if I was on the I was listening to this story and I was thinking, you know, on the outside looking in, like, oh, everything would be fine. You know, China's desperate to have their currency be the new reserve currency and all these different things. Mm. it's not all it's cracked up to be. It doesn't really help us on a day. It doesn't feel like it helps an American on an everyday basis. Maybe it does, but it doesn't feel that way. Does it feel that way to you? Are you like, oh, thank goodness I'm the reserve currency as you're buying your milk? Uh, You know, it's it's why I can sleep at night. Mm, So that, (laughs) (laughs) all right, well, hey, you know what? I retract my statement. That's point point redacted. Hey, there you go. Hey, good on you. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that's a huge, in a huge headline, I, I say <laughs> that I was wrong. <laughs> Scott changed his mind. Yeah. Front page news. A Russian general says he was fired after airing battlefield concerns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, BBC News, and The Guardian. A top Russian general said he was suddenly dismissed from his post after he told military leaders of battlefield concerns. 
Major General Ivan Popov commanded Russia's 58th Combined Arms Army, a formation within Russia's southern military district that's fighting in the Zaporizhia front of Ukraine. In a voice note shared by Russian lawmaker Andrei Garulyov, himself a former military commander, Popov said, It was necessary to either keep quiet and be a coward or to say it the way it is. I had no right to lie in the name of you, in the name of my fallen comrades in arms, so I outlined all the problems which exist. Popov said he conveyed concerns about the lack of counter-battery combat, the absence of artillery reconnaissance stations, and the mass deaths and injuries of our brothers and enemy artillery fire. However, he added that military bosses sensed some kind of danger in this, and instead of taking action, they concocted a way of getting rid of him the next day. Without naming Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, Popov appeared to lay the blame on him, saying, The armed forces of Ukraine couldn't break through our army on the front line. We were hit from behind by our highest boss, treacherously and vilely. Neither the Kremlin nor the Russian Defense Ministry have addressed the voice note, but it will come as unwelcome news to Russian President Putin, who is seeking to reestablish himself following the failed Wagner mutiny last month. Earlier on Tuesday, Russia's defense ministry said that it had received more than 2,000 pieces of equipment, including hundreds of tanks and more than 2,500 tons of ammunition from Wagner, seemingly indicating the group was complying with the truce agreed with Belarus. Elsewhere, General Sergei Sorovkin, another Russian general who has not been publicly cited since the Wagner mutiny, was said to be resting, according to a senior Russian official. Unconfirmed reports suggested he had foreknowledge of the rebellion and was also dismissed from his role. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll begin this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. This type of open dispute between Russian military leaders is unprecedented surely a consequence of Wagner's failed march against Moscow. Following that, more and more cracks started to show. This is another major embarrassment for Russia. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia faces a number of challenges at this time. It's not only engaged in war with the West, but also embroiled in an economic and information war. In order to meet these challenges, Russia must unite as one. And there's another nerd narrative, this time saying there's a 90% chance that Vladimir Putin will be president of Russia on January 1st, 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The role of the media of a country during a war is a difficult one because you want to report on what's happening, but presumably you have a side, you know, your own nation. And you don't want to give away, you know, important information. Uh, So I can understand the dilemma there. It makes me, reminds me of when Trump was saying, news outlets were reporting that we were no longer going to do waterboarding. We're not doing it anymore. We're not, we're no longer torturing. But Trump was saying, could you not tell everybody? Because now we'd like to be able to say we're going to, we'd like to be able to threaten these things. And now you're yeah. saying we won't do it. Ideally, we wouldn't do it, but we would say we were going to do it. And I can right. totally understand that mentality. Yeah. Although, you know, in the <laughs> to make a wild leap in, in the parenting world, mm. um, not that we waterboard, but per se. making making threats that you don't follow through on you're also in trouble. Yeah. Makes it makes a weakness out of you out of the leader. So you only get to do that a couple times. Yeah, when you when you when you threaten your children, you have to follow through. <laughs> the FDA approves its first non-prescription birth control pill. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Washington Post, Reuters, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, NBC, and Politico. On Thursday, the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, approved the first-ever non-prescription daily hormonal contraceptive pill in the U.S. Approval of the drug Opil comes six decades after birth control pills were introduced in the nation. Opil, sold by the company Perigo, was initially approved for prescription use in 1973. The over-the-counter version, which is available without a prescription, is expected to be in stores and online in early 2024. In a news release, Dr. Patrizia Cavazzioni, director of the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, said Opil is safe and is expected to be more effective than currently available non-prescription contraceptive methods in preventing unintended pregnancy. This approval covers everyone of reproductive age, including teenagers. The company has said it would keep the drug affordable and offer financial assistance to people who qualify. Under the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies are required to cover birth control, but this doesn't apply to non-prescription drugs. In addition, another company called Cadence OTC is seeking FDA approval for its own over-the-counter daily oral contraceptive, with the company scheduled to start late-stage trials on the drug in 2024. Thanks for that update, Melissa. The left narrative spin comes from the Washington Post. This approval is probably 60 years overdue and should reduce barriers to access by allowing people to obtain birth control without needing to see a health care provider. In the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, it's important to do whatever it takes to reduce the number of unintended pregnancies. Now Perigo must make good on its promise to make O-Pill affordable for whoever needs it. And here's the right narrative from the National Catholic Register. This over-the-counter approval is irresponsible and dangerous. Opil has documented and potentially life-threatening side effects, and any patient with access to the drug should at the very least be medically evaluated for contraindications to the drug. Vulnerable people, especially teenagers, could be seriously harmed by this approval. Deforestation in Colombia has dropped by 29%. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Latin Post, and The Guardian. According to recently released government statistics, deforestation in Colombia dropped by 29% in 2022. This marks the lowest level in nearly 10 years. Colombian President Gustavo Petro has stated that his government is prioritizing protecting the environment, calling on wealthy nations to cancel foreign debt in exchange for preserving regions like the Amazon in a bid to tackle climate change. The deforestation figures published on Wednesday showed that Colombia's deforestation decreased from about 174,000 hectares, or 670 square miles, to 124,000 hectares, or 475 square miles, nearly a 30% reduction. According to the advocacy group the Foundation for Conservation and Sustainable Development, this is the highest reduction in deforestation and forest fires due to burning off undergrowth in two decades. Colombia's experiences with deforestation have been primarily caused by cattle ranching, drug crops, and illegal mining. Decreases in deforestation have been linked to government policies aimed at working with local communities and the orders of guerrilla groups to forbid burning. Despite the new data, the Colombian government has cautioned against declaring victory against deforestation. Environmental Minister Susana Muhammad stated at a press conference in Bogota that despite the very good reduction, 
continued focus was necessary to sustain and maintain the progress in the years to come. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts, and here is the spin. We'll begin with Narrative A from the Miami Herald. The world needs the Amazon rainforest. Only through global climate action can we ensure a sustainable future for our planet. Eradicating deforestation is a priority as well as phasing out fossil fuel development, not only in the Amazon, but worldwide. Countries such as Colombia, while historically producing some of the lowest carbon emissions, are facing the brunt of the fight alone. The global north must commit to phasing out fossil fuel development so the global community can fight climate change in a more equitable way. And narrative B comes from the Patriot Post. Current mainstream climate policies are often incredibly costly, and a lot of the conversations surrounding the potential consequences of climate change are vastly exaggerated. Greater emphasis must be placed on developing technology to explore and access the world's resources as humans continue to successfully adapt to a changing global environment. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous community saying there's an 85% chance that there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by 2100. The FTC is investigating OpenAI's ChatGPT for possible consumer harm. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, NBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, has opened an investigation into OpenAI, probing whether the maker of ChatGPT has harmed consumers by putting reputations and data at risk. In a letter sent to OpenAI, first reported by the Washington Post and verified by other major outlets, the FTC stated that this probe will focus on whether the company has engaged in unfair or deceptive practices related to data security or that resulted in harm to consumers. The civil subpoena made public on Thursday asks OpenAI to detail steps it has taken to address or mitigate risks that its large language model products could generate false, misleading, or disparaging statements about real individuals. It further requests the company to list the third parties that have access to its models and explain both how they obtain information to train their LLMs and how they retain and use consumer information. These demands pose the most major regulatory threat to date to OpenAI's business in the U.S. as the FTC can levy fines or even put a business under a consent decree, i.e. an agreement or settlement that resolves a dispute between two parties without admission of guilt, if the company is found to have violated consumer protection laws. OpenAI has already come under regulatory pressure abroad, with ChatGPT being banned in Italy from March to April on claims that the company was unlawfully collecting personal data from users and failed to prevent minors from accessing illicit material. Thanks for that update, Melissa. Narrative A on this story comes from Fortune magazine. Though large language models have been widely known for their imperfections and tendency to hallucinate, Tech companies have decided that the appeal of such products beats the potential downsides of inaccuracy and misinformation. Given that this choice can harm users, as bots such as ChatGPT often produce plausible but incorrect information, governments must step in and regulate these systems. Decrypt brings us Narrative B. OpenAI has already acknowledged that generative artificial intelligence can produce untrue content, transparently and responsibly warning users against blindly trusting ChatGPT and confirming the sources provided by the large language model. 
Meanwhile, its researchers are working to improve the technology's mathematical problem solving and exploring the impact of process supervision. And appropriately enough, we have a nerd narrative on this story as well. The Metaculous community predicts there's a 65% chance that a member of the United States Congress will introduce legislation limiting the use of LLMs before January 1st, 2024. Genie is kind of out of the bottle at this point, right? If if Congress passes something, isn't a little seems late for that. Yeah, I mean they're talking about it already. Okay, but that uh, I don't know how much of a consensus has to happen in Congress. There needs to be a lot of education. Yeah, as we've mentioned on this show. Oh God, remember when that guy <laughs> brought the snowball in to prove that global warming wasn't happening? Uh, and whatever you think about climate change, the fact that this guy found a snowball uh, has nothing to do with climate change, whether it's happening or not. Like, there, that's, that's just nothing. Um, <laughs> and then later it came out that it was frost from his freezer anyway. So it was just a total. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, I don't I don't have I don't know for sure. That's part of this. The, the, if that's urban legend or not. But a, a congressperson, some member of Congress on some legislative body to prove that there was no such thing as climate change brought a snowball into Congress. That's what we're dealing with, folks. Educate okay. yourself and act accordingly. Act My God. accordingly. Whatever you believe, act accordingly. And sad news from Sudan is the UN says 87 are found in a Darfur mass grave. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, The Guardian, Fox News, Al Jazeera, CNN, and The National. The UN Human Rights Office said Thursday that a mass grave containing the bodies of at least 87 people, including women and children, was found just outside El Janina, the capital of Sudan's West Darfur state, accusing the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, and its allied militias of the atrocity. The UN reported that from June 20th to 21st, local people were found to dispose of dead bodies in a shallow grave in an open area outside the city. An unknown number of the dead were ethnic Mazalists, a non-Arab people who the RSF has been accused of targeting in El Janina. According to the UN statement, the first 37 bodies were buried on June 20th, and another 50 bodies were dumped at the same site the next day, with seven women and seven children among the buried. The RSF has denied being responsible, saying recently that it did not get involved in the fighting in Darfur, as the conflict is a tribal one. Starting in 2003, a conflict in Darfur erupted, killing hundreds of thousands in a violent campaign that was described as ethnic cleansing. Arab militias, often called the Janjaweed, were accused of the killings and were eventually reorganized into the RSF. The current conflict began in mid-April between Abdel Fattah al-Burhan's Sudanese Armed Forces and the RSF, commanded by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. After heavy fighting erupted in Khartoum, killing hundreds of civilians, neither side has since gained a substantial upper hand, and fighting has spread to other regions such as Darfur. Thank you, Scott. We'll begin this round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. Since violence erupted in Sudan, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has worked hard to stamp out violence by proposing a peaceful solution and providing safe passage for humanitarian aid. The U.S.-backed Mediation Coalition is doing its part to enable a diplomatic resolution and commit itself to supporting refugees until a ceasefire or permanent agreement is reached. 
and the establishment critical narrative comes from Al-Monitor. Though the U.S. and Saudi Arabia brokered a ceasefire, it's undeniable that Washington is significantly responsible for the fighting in Sudan. The U.S. failed to rein in the country's top generals when mounting tensions between forces led by Al-Burhan and Degallo indicated that a prolonged conflict was likely to erupt. Facilitating a truce is the least U.S. leaders can do for the region given this negligence. And there's a cynical narrative from NPR. Each warring side in Sudan is still battling for supremacy over the country, which indicates they're in no way serious about these ceasefires or peace talks. If the two continue to see each other as an existential threat, it will be impossible to find the middle ground necessary to stop the fighting and prevent the nation from being destroyed. In our next story, Hugh Edwards is named as the accused personality at the BBC scandal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, The Guardian, and The New York Times. The BBC presenter accused of purchasing sexually explicit images from a teenager under the age of 18 has been identified as longtime news anchor Hugh Edwards, according to a statement released on Wednesday by his wife, Vicki Flynn. The statement came shortly after London's Metropolitan Police determined that no crime had been committed by Edwards. Flynn says that Edwards is currently being hospitalized for serious mental health issues, where he will remain for the foreseeable future. Last week, The Sun published a front-page story alleging an unnamed BBC presenter had paid a young individual more than £35,000, or $45,000, for sexually explicit images, suggesting the interactions had started when the individual was 17. The young individual's lawyer rebuked The Sun's claim as rubbish, with the newspaper later claiming that it had never alleged criminality. The age of consent in England is 16, with sexual images of those under 18 being illegal. The BBC claims they were informed of the allegations by the individual's mother in mid-May, and that a separate accusation of Edwards sending abusive messages over a dating app had been uncovered, saying their internal investigation will continue. Flynn says she was issuing a statement on behalf of her husband to quell the intense speculation as to the identity of the accused personality, also requesting privacy for her family. Edwards is one of the most prominent journalists at the BBC and is one of their highest paid stars. The Sun and the BBC are facing criticism for their handling of the allegations, with the newspaper later clarifying that contact was only made when the individual was 17. BBC Director General Tim Davey claims that the accusations made in May only reached senior management last week. All right, thanks for those scandalous facts. Melissa, Narrative A comes from The Guardian. It's becoming more apparent that The Sun's allegations against Edwards are less scandalous than what it has led us to believe, moving from a criminal matter to a private family one. Its reckless and incendiary reporting smeared a public figure as being a procurer of child pornography an accusation much more serious than infidelity. The normally pugnacious outlet has found itself backtracking over this story and could now be open to legal action over the libelous claim. And the mirror brings us narrative B. Even if the accusations of procuring explicit images from a minor is untrue, Edwards has still breached the trust of the British public. A wealthy and powerful man has likely pursued sexual relationships with vulnerable young people in exchange for vast sums of money, which goes beyond a mere extramarital affair. 
more allegations of misconduct are emerging. And while Edwards might be legally absolved, he certainly isn't morally absolved. The public deserved better from the BBC. And our final story, humans may have arrived in the Americas earlier than archaeologists previously thought. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Newsweek, Live Science, and NBC. Archaeologists found three giant sloth bones at the Santa Elena Rock Shelter in central Brazil, which they say were likely perforated and polished by human hands between 25,000 and 27,000 years ago to be used as pendants. These would be the oldest known personal ornaments unearthed in the Americas. Some scientists applauded the discovery's importance in the debate over when humans first reached the continent, while others are skeptical of the research published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B. The current consensus is that people reached the Americas around 13,500 years ago. The sloth bones, called osteoderms, bony deposits that form a kind of protective armor over the skin of animals such as armadillos, were found near stone tools and had tiny holes that only human hands could have made. The polishing and perforation were found by way of microscopic and macroscopic visualization techniques. Researchers from Brazil, the U.S., and France were the first to extensively analyze the bones, which were originally found 30 years ago, and ruled out the possibility that humans had found them thousands of years after the animals died. Rather, they say the tool work was likely conducted within days or several years. While at least 13,500 years is the primary consensus, other studies have suggested people reached the continent during or even earlier than the last glacial maximum. That would put human arrival at between 19,000 and 26,000 years ago, though some are skeptical of any time frame before 16,000 years. Thank you for those facts, Scott, and we'll begin this round of Narrative Spins with Narrative A from The Daily Caller. This puts the icing on the cake for modern researchers who believe the current consensus is outdated. Not only does this study shatter previous estimates for human migration, but it shows humans on the continent back then were more advanced than believed. For the public narrative to finally shift on the issue, we may need the newer generation of archaeologists to take over. And Narrative B comes from Live Science. While many scientists agree that the old Bering Strait land bridge theory, which gives us the 13,000 to 15,000 year mark, is outdated, there is still no solid evidence humans arrived as far back as 27,000 years ago. This debate is a long way from being settled and more research must be conducted. I mean, I still use my sloth bones today. I know they're a little outdated, but that's a really handy tool. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, there was a time way back, be it 27,000 years ago or otherwise, where someone's sloth bones were like gauche or out of date. Like, oh, you're still wearing sloth bones? Please. <laughs> that's so 26,000 years ago. Jeez. Yeah. We're using armadillos now for yeah. tools. Get with it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday. For Friday, July 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. 
For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our apps on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.